0: Welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician, a CMIO, and the host of CMIO podcast. Today, I'm bringing you Dr. Justin Mazzillo, who is an associate CMIO at Rochester. And we're going to be talking about a variety of topics today, but one of them that uh, caught my eye, Justin wrote to me saying, hey, what are you doing about this final rule and information blocking? And I had no idea. There's this little segment in there that says, you kind of got to release all your results immediately. And I think about pathology results, And we have those on delay in my system. I suspect many of you do as well. We're going to talk more about that. Let me introduce Justin. How are you? And thanks for joining us today.
1: Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. And I just want to say I'm honored to be here. I've been listening to this podcast really since episode one. And it's been a tremendous resource. So thank you for having me. And thank you for doing this. My pleasure. If you would...
0: Tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you get to be an associate CMIO and uh, what do you do now?
1: Sure. My journey has been actually uh, pretty interesting and every week or so I pinch myself and I wonder myself how I got here. I I came here to the University of Rochester. My wife is uh, from the area, so we always knew we wanted to land back here. And within a series of months, just due to some random events, I ended up in a leadership position here in the emergency department, helping out with informatics here. And then shortly thereafter, our two associate CMIOs stepped down at the same time to take on other roles. And the opportunity opened up and our CMIO reached out to me and before I knew it, I was in a leadership position at the whole university. And ever since then, it's just been one big learning curve, really. So what percent of your time is administrative versus clinical at this stage of your life? So right now, I'm about 90% administrative, 50% of my time is uh, devoted to being the associate CMIO, about 20% of my time, I carry the position of associate chief medical officer for the U of R. um, But that position is really revolved around uh, malpractice, risk reduction and patient safety and then i do a few administrative things for our department my department of emergency medicine including informatics some documentation compliance and and scheduling as well and then i fit in some clinical shifts in the ed in my spare time i think it's an
0: interesting combo of the cmio informatics side along with the safety side that should be a really good fit in terms of trying to prevent harm reduce errors the emr plays a role in that. Do you see good synergy there?
1: Yeah, I do. I was a little bit nervous to take the Associate Chief Medical Officer position, even though I was very uh, appreciative to be offered it. I was a little nervous just with the amount of time I was already spending doing informatics with my associate CMIO role. But there is a lot of overlap. As, as you know, Mark, there's really no patient safety initiative without an EMR intervention or some data request. So There is a lot of synergy and there's a lot of overlap in what I do. So they they work very well together. And I know you work for this absolute bear of a CMIO, the
0: toughest guy in the world, this orthopedic surgeon. How in the world? I'm just kidding. He's a great guy. So tell us a little bit about your relationship with Greg.
1: Yeah, so as the listeners might know, Greg is a relatively new CMIO. He was on this podcast about a year ago. And it's so far, it's been going really well. It's been interesting. I sort of had to help him onboard a little bit when he started, just because I knew the organization a little bit more as I'd been in my role for about three years at the time. But boy, has he picked it up so quickly. And he's really doing absolutely transformative things here at the university. And he's, it's really a pleasure to work for him. And the one downside is the fact that he's an orthopedic surgeon. And I think that they're probably some of the hardest working people I've ever met. He'll call me sometimes <laughs> at 7 or 8, uh, 7 or 8 at nighttime and, and be like, hey, I just wanted to catch up, Justin. I'm, I'm leaving the hospital from a meeting now. And I'm, I've been, sorry, I've been home for a couple hours, you know. You, you almost feel bad. <laughs> yeah, no, I,
0: I had great feelings
1: that he would be... A phenomenal
0: CMIO when we first interviewed him and you also have a cnio there who is a ball of
1: fire absolutely she too is doing great things as well she came from the outside so just brought an outside perspective which i think can be valuable to an organization but she's still just as much of a ball of fire as she was on day one and and her and greg work very well together they're trying to reshape our governance and our processes here so it was interesting having both of them start just about the same time But yeah, absolutely doing wonderful things. So
0: yeah, Rosemary was a really great speaker on our early podcast and a lot of fun. And I ran into her at UGM and just a ball of energy. What a phenomenal leader she must be. So you've got good company there. You've got
1: good things. What are you doing then as an associate CMIO? What are you working on now? Sure. So a lot of things, I think. Right now, like you mentioned earlier, one of my big focuses is going to be on MIPS and information blocking. When the MIPS program started, it took a lot of my time. There was a lot of buzz around it. And so a lot of interest in our leadership and and from our chairs. So a lot of that was expectation management and then putting a program in place so we can report and be successful with the program. And then over the last couple of years, that sort of died down a little bit as I think the program still is not as big financially as we thought it would have been. But now with this information blocking piece, we're just trying to ingest the information right now and figure out, you know, figure out what changes we need to make. And, And boy, some of these, I think are going to be a hard pill to swallow for some of our docs. So we're really just trying to make sure we know our stuff before we start putting a plan in motion. So that's a big part of my time right now. I chair a relatively new committee that we stood up about a year ago, our clinical decision support committee. Actually, after you had Mark Tobias on your podcast last year, he had reached out to Greg and Greg put him in touch with me because I had just formed this group. And so getting that group up and running was really a labor of love. It was a lot of work, but we're, I think we're really starting to do great things. And I'd be happy to talk a little more about that. If you want to go into the details, Mark, we've reduced, I, I think on our first year alerts by 2.6 million pop-up alerts per year, which is, was a great win for us. Sure and is. Yeah. Okay. So
0: let's talk a little bit about information blocking. So when the final rule was rolling out, I caught on to, hey, you have to release things. And I, for whatever the reason, locked in on, wow, we better release our notes so that patients can see the information that's in their charts. And it just never occurred to me about this piece that you brought to my attention of, hey, lab results. Now, we release all of our lab results, but then I shouldn't say all because pathology and there were some sensitive sexually transmitted disease tests that we hold for three days. And you highlighted something to me that said, ah, not so fast. You actually
1: need to release that. Tell me about that. How did you find this? And what do you, how are you interpreting it? So we've had our eye on this really every year. We, we look at the rule when it, it gets released and, and just to see if we are in line with it. And, and we too have a similar approach to our release schedule. We hold pathology and advanced imaging for, I think, seven days. And then we have a few sensitive tests that are actually not released due to some New York state laws around minors. So we look at it every year. And then we had just been waiting for this final rule to be um, released this year. And we were a little nervous about it due to the, I think it was the, the preliminary rule that was released late last year. And they really, you know, laid it out pretty straight in in that rule because previously the, in in our opinion, the language is a little bit vague and, and gave us sort of that comfort level with putting a delayed release in, but now they really make it sound like you need to release everything right away. So I guess I'm a little bit. Uh, Torn on how I feel about this. I do believe patients should have access to their data Doing it immediately really I think can lead to some harm. You could take Huntington's disease for example That's an interesting one. We have a genetics and neurogenetics program here and and my understanding is in order to be a program of excellence the result of Huntington's disease is supposed to be um, Given to the patient through an in-person visit not over the phone or not by electronic means And so this is going to potentially jeopardize that but then the whole diagnosing of cancer. And when a patient looks at at a report, a lot of them aren't in the medical field. So sometimes reports can sound a lot scarier than they really are. And so patients are just going to be getting these right away without having a provider explain it to them. They might get it on the weekend or at night and, and cause a lot of undue stress. So I think we have to do what the law tells us to do. And hopefully we can implement it in a way that our providers can make do with it.
0: What you showed me, and then I went on to Epic's uh, user web, and I saw some other information because they had a webinar around this topic, is that there was a, it's kind of like a question and answer piece to the final rule where you can get at more detail. And it was one of the questions it sounded like was, do we need to release all results right away? Can we interpret this as we're protecting patients from getting a bad result like cancer, and they responded, we do expect you to release all results. That having a policy that says we block results because a patient could theoretically be harmed is not okay. That it has to be an individual decision, which is nearly impossible to do In when you're executing on this. You're either going to be releasing them or not. So." I think they were very clear in this. Have you broached this with your surgical colleagues about, hey, we're going to take your pathology results and release them in real time?
1: Yeah, so we haven't yet. I pulled together a group about- Chicken. (laughs) You know, so we just want to make sure our ducks in a row before before we go out there to the firing squad, uh, for lack of a better term. So I wasn't involved in the initial release schedule; I wasn't here yet. But we have a medical director for patient engagement who was, and, and my understanding was she went to every group that was affected and talked to them about it. But she has some scars that she can still show from that. So what we did was we pulled a group together a couple of weeks ago: compliance, legal, a few folks from operations, and we just said we introduced it. We said here are the rules, here's the language. It's legalese when you read it so it's hard for me to truly interpret and we're planning on meeting again in, in another week just to come to hopefully a final conclusion of, of our interpretation and then to come up with a game plan of of how we're gonna uh, make this happen I'm uh a chicken as well, and sent it out <laughs> by
0: email so they can't get me. And then in, you put in an out-of-office
1: uh, room yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, COVID social distancing, that also includes not strangling me in person. So I have a medical informatics committee meeting that I, I bring together, you know, the providers, and that's tomorrow morning, actually, we're going to be doing this. So I'll, I'll have to post one day about how this went. But I'm anticipating that there's going to be some unhappy providers about this that, Patients will find out about their cancer through the portal. That's going to happen. And what's going to be that blowback? Are patients going to be angry finding out this way? Or are providers going to have that conversation ahead of time saying, look, you may get your results before me. Is that something we have to incorporate like in our consent process now? What do you, How do you think you're going to handle that component of the patient's getting angry, perhaps, about being told they have
1: cancer through electronic means. Yeah, I'm curious to hear what your experience is tomorrow morning. You almost wish that that there was a way for the patient to either delay, choose to delay or choose to not get a certain results if they prefer to hear it from a provider. And I'm sure some patients do want to get it right away. I can't say I blame them, um, but some might prefer to hear it from the provider. So you almost wish that existed. And that language is in
0: the final rule there that the patient should be able to have the choice, but that functionality doesn't exist within our EMRs. Check yes if you want it now, check no if you want to get it from your doctor. At least I haven't seen that. It's not in Epic, and I don't believe it's in Cerner. Maybe that functionality will become possible. That would be, I agree with you, that
1: would be a great way of handling this. Um, yeah, I've heard some rumblings of Epic doing some development around this, but I'm I can't say I could, you know, I know exactly what their plans are, whether it would be on the, the patient side or it would be on the provider side at the time of ordering. Have you gone to open notes yet? So we went on to open notes in the ambulatory setting, oh boy, it was probably a year and a half ago and, and I have some wounds from that, uh, as I'm sure you do as well. Although like like you've said before, really for the most part was a non-event. But just the, I think the anxiety around it was, was quite substantial. We have not done that for our uh, emergency department or urgent care, as well as for our inpatient notes, although that's, gonna, that's another part of this um, 21st Century Cures Act is there's two phases as we interpret it. But by this, I think it's October or November, have to do a lot of our inpatient notes uh, as well as ED. And then I think in 36 months after that, it's almost all notes aside from, I think, psychotherapy. That's how I interpreted it as well. And we went live with open notes, and
0: it it was a non-event. I think releasing pathology is going to be a bigger event because patients will look at their path results. I don't know that they're so interested in looking at notes. In fact, the data suggests maybe 10% actually look. But a pathology, if I went and had a biopsy, yeah, I'd be hitting the refresh button on my lab results section constantly. So it'll be interesting to see Someone will do some research, I hope, and say, "Is does this cause harm or is this beneficial? Uh, I, again, you're right. I want patients to have their data, but I also want them to be able to ask questions at the same time as they get their data. And those questions should be to their physician, not Google, which is where they're going to go. <laughs> and right. that's, that's going to be a problem, I think.
1: Yeah. And then Uh, on the provider side, I think provider burnout is real. And I think that more people are going to be getting their results on a Thursday night at 9 PM when they get home from work or on a Saturday. And and what are you going to do if you get a result that says that you might have cancer? You probably call your doctor, right? So I think our providers are going to start getting more phone calls at off hours, which will further contribute to that work after work issue.
0: And I can picture the on-call doctor who is not the one that did the procedure saying, I really can't help you. You have to talk to your doctor. I hope it doesn't go down that way. I hope we have more compassion. But I can see that happening, uh, that someone doesn't want to necessarily break bad news to a patient they've never met before. I I get that. I understand that. And then the anxiety that's going to produce in the patient who now says, okay, I got to wait till Monday knowing I've got something and not knowing how to interpret that. So yeah, that's a... That's a. It's going to be a touchy area. So, uh, thank you for bringing it to my attention. You have uh, caused the physicians in our community to have endless stress now because you found no. TC. <laughs> I think it's uh, really helpful, actually. So, thank you. You can blame me. Send them my way. Absolutely, I plan to. <laughs> All right, let's. You, you guys, in the heat of COVID here, I think have done some things around
1: chatbots. Is that my understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's right. So we've done a few things let's see so in the beginning of let's say early mid-march we stood up a covid telephone line out of our urgent cares and very quickly we were getting 500 plus calls a day and they were being answered by mostly advanced practice providers but some physicians at our urgent cares and a lot of the questions were very much so from the worried well and so greg actually presented to a few of us a chatbot that was made at one of the organizations in seattle and said hey we could probably have our health lab do this this isn't too much work and a few days later i you know reached back out to him and said i think there's some interest for this let's see what we could do so our health lab Created a chatbot along with myself and you know, some very simple questions. Do you have symptoms and did you have contact um, with anybody or any risky behaviors? At that time, it was traveled to one of the CDC high risk areas and, and over time, New York City. And the chatbot was very successful. It decreased our, our call volumes by about 50%. And we found that most, more than 50% of the people who were calling ended up screening negative. So we were just sort of reassuring people. And after that, we ended up developing a chatbot for our employees. So our employees at the medical center have to fill out a chatbot if they are coming into work that day to a patient care area, and they it's almost like a boarding pass. They they fill out the chatbot, and if they have no symptoms, they get sort of a green check mark that they can you know show to their manager. And if they screen positive, then they're supposed to not come into work and call their manager and, and potentially get tested. And we've had a lot of success with that. We've had really good adoption. And then after we set up that first chatbot. We had used Tableau as a visualization tool. And one of the smartest things we did, and I can't take credit for this, was ask the person who was filling it out to enter their zip code. And so when I started going over the data with our health lab, it just sort of hit me. I mean, they showed us a heat map of our, of our region with, and you could see where sort of symptoms were more prevalent than others and, and what areas were trending higher for patients that could have COVID and which areas were trending lower. And I just said, boy, there's got to be a really good public health use case for this. So Greg, myself, and a few other people sort of brought this to our chief medical officer who loved the idea and who sent it into the county. And within a few weeks, we had had sort of a task force formed between the other sort of large healthcare organization in town here with us and then three other local organizations. So we came up with a community-wide chatbot. And about two weeks ago now, our county executive and our health commissioner went on to the news and they you know, asked our citizens of our region to fill out this chatbot every day to, to help us identify trends. Right now, we have quite a lot of testing capacity for our health system, but we certainly can't test everybody every day. And we think this is probably the next best thing. And, and as we start to open our society, we're hopeful that this will allow us to monitor areas of outbreak. And that maybe we shut that zip code down for a few days or a week because we see them trending, or maybe some of the supermarkets or stores get more frequent sanitization. So we're still not sure exactly what we're going to do with this, but we really think this could play an important role in, in our um, region's recovery. So how does someone interact with
0: the chatbot? Is this they pull it up on their cell phone? Are they talking? Is it conversational
1: artificial intelligence, or is it you type into it? Sure. So it's, you can do it on your cell phone or on a computer. It's essentially just a website and it goes through a series of questions. It asks you your zip code and then it says, do you have any of the, what we identified as the five symptoms that are most concerning for COVID. And then it allows the person to enter in their email or cell phone if they want. So they can get a daily reminder to fill out the chat bot, but it it is all um, web based. It's not an application at this point.
0: What other use cases are you considering for chatbots? It sounds like anywhere human needs to interact with human that you could most likely have decision tree branching that would get the person to the right place or give them the information they need, help
1: them schedule an appointment. I can see
0: lots of uses for chatbots. What are you thinking of?
1: I think so too. This was really our first... Foray into chatbots as an organization. As far as I know, um, we weren't using it for any type of scheduling. But as long as you can build a decision tree off it, you're right, you can use it for anything. So for now, we're 100% focused on using it for COVID. We have had a ton of local businesses reach out to us to inquire about building it for them so they can help their employees get back to work safer and build a little bit more of a customized experience for them. But I I do think after this, now that we've gotten some experience with it, like you said, you can use this for a lot of different things throughout the organization.
0: Now, during the intro, you had mentioned that you're heavily involved with clinical decision support and leading a committee on this. Tell us a little bit, give us an example from your last committee meeting. What topics did you talk about? What does it look like to run a clinical decision support committee?
1: Sure. So... The last few meetings have been a little unique because of COVID, so I might take you back a little farther. It's been an interesting journey. So the impetus came. It was one year I was out at XGM, and I think I went to two or three talks on clinical decision support and just said, we really need this here. I think like a lot of other organizations, we didn't really have good governance over our BPAs or pop-up alerts. or really our clinical decision support, and I just felt we could be doing so much more. So we decided to stand up this committee And it was really tough in the beginning. I didn't know how to run this meeting. Running a meeting, as you know, is, I think, an art. And I think I'm decent at it. But this meeting was tough. We were meeting once a month, and it just seemed like there was never enough time to get enough done. And so I was very frustrated in the beginning that I saw so much potential, but we just really didn't have the outcomes. So, like I said, a meeting, to see how other groups did it was transformative for me. And so what we ended up doing was we created sort of an intake form that walks the requester through some questions. What's your patient population you're looking to get at? What's your provider or your clinician population you're trying to get at? What do you what message are you trying to convey. And so once we did that, it allowed our meetings to start working a lot more efficiency and we could get things done. Um, And let me go back and say that after the person fills out the form, we have one of our our CDS committee members meet with the person first to sort of go through some things, because a lot of times people don't always know what they want or or they're looking at the wrong tool. And so once we were able to do that, we started becoming a lot more efficient. So our let's see. uh, One good example was we I think there's an epic foundation BPA that warns people if the allergies for that encounter were not reviewed. And we started using Slicer Dicer, which as you know, is Epic, one of Epic's um, data visualization tools to look at the BPA. We, we just realized the performance was abysmal. I mean, the desired action was being taken less than 1% of the time. And so what we did was we sort of applied those five rights of clinical decision support to the tool. We looked at every user who was seeing it. We looked at every user's workflow and what time in the workflow they saw it. And as a group, we made some, what for this particular piece, some pretty easy decisions. And we were able to drop this alert by magnitudes while actually getting more people to take the desired action because they were getting it at the right time of their workflow. So we have a lot of great examples that we probably don't have time to uh, talk about today, allergies, like I had mentioned, certain drug, drug interactions that were just sort of useless. And then I'm also proud of the new decision support that we've implemented because we see that the performance is a lot better than some of those ones that were implemented historically.
0: Who sits on a clinical decision support committee? What's your makeup? How many people and roughly what are their titles uh, or what do they do for a living?
1: Sure. So our committee has, boy, probably about 15 members, although let's say we get probably 10 to show up every month. And what we tried to do was we tried to get someone from nursing informatics, which is absolutely key because they absolutely see clinical decision support and are part of the team that has to take care of the patient. So we have right now, Rosemary is on that committee. So our CNIO is on the committee. And then from the provider side, we tried to get People with both an interest in this and then someone from anesthesia, someone from the operating room, some inpatient and some ambulatory physician builders um, on the committee as as well. It's actually funny. So Greg was our surgeon before um, he became the CMIO, but I told him we have to kick him off the committee because uh, he doesn't have time to come anymore. So we hired a new surgeon for that. And then we have the our what we call ISD, our information system division analysts on that. So we have some ISD analysts or EPIC analysts who have an interest in clinical decision support and who are um, particularly good with BPA build and with slicer-dicer, because as you know, having the data is just critical to um, making decisions. So
0: Joe, to clarify, you're not using the BPA cube, you use slicer-dicer for your entire analysis of the BPAs?
1: Yeah, so we implemented BPAQ maybe two years ago and we started using it a little bit, but at least for me, using Slicer Dicer, the BPA model was much more intuitive and, and just the, the, the visualizations are a lot easier to interpret than just using Excel. I completely agree. I have been working with
0: some clinical decision support in our system, and I'm curious about your monthly meeting kind of schedule. Is this enough? or is there work going on in between the meetings where analysts are going off and analyzing the BPAs? I don't know how many BPAs you have. Let's just say you have two, three hundred of them out there, and maybe more. Who's going through these and at what frequency?
1: Yeah, so those are great questions. So I don't think we meet enough, but a lot of our committee members, they don't don't have any protected time to do this. This is sort of them doing this from the the good of their own hearts, so to say. So I, I felt bad about making this meeting more frequent, although I think it would be beneficial to do so. And so that was one of the pieces that I think talking to Mark Tobias was really insightful, was that... I think his feeling was if if you don't meet as often, you probably need to do more work outside of the meeting. And that's where creating this intake form and then having people meet with the requester on an asynchronous basis to the meeting really helps so we can bring things to the meeting just a little bit more mature and and teed up and ready to go. I don't think we've really gotten our processes down in, in terms of which BPAs to look at and review. In a perfect world, we'd like to review every BPA every three years just to make sure that they're still pertinent as some things were put into place for a regulatory reason that might be uh, no longer applicable. I actually have a funny story about that. If you remind me, I'll, I'll tell you a little later. And then just to have a systematic approach to how you review existing BPAs. And so right now we've been trying to look at the most commonly dismissed BPAs or the most commonly firing BPAs. And I think that that's okay for now, just because there's so much work to be done, but eventually we're going to have to really better define our processes. But I think it's it'll help to get a, a little bit more maybe project management resources around our group to make that happen.
0: Is it just best practice alerts that you're looking at? Or do you get into order set review and identifying order sets that aren't being used or orders that are on the order set that have never been picked in years? Anything like that?
1: Yeah, so when we started this group, our goal was to do that. But I think very quickly I realized that there's so much work to be done around BPAs, I just said, let's focus on the BPAs. I do still consider ourselves a clinical decision support group because what might come in as a BPA request might end up with an order set implementation, right? So we might recommend that the output is to put something in an order set, but we're not reviewing new order sets. I did put together a group recently to start looking at at least some of the more frequently used order sets to make sure they're still pertinent, but that is, is separate from our CDS committee. I think that that's really that's very helpful. So my favorite move as a CMIO
0: is to have the alert stop hitting the physician and just move it to hit the nurse, because that's like the best thing ever. And I <laughs> just don't think that would fly with Rosemary. I, as a matter of fact, I think she'd kick my butt if I was over there. So how do you work with nursing? Are you reviewing the nursing alerts as well? Or is it just nursing's represented to just kind of make sure that physicians aren't just transferring work to the nurses?
1: Yeah, no, you're right. And that's why I actually, I'm more scared of Rosemary than I am of Greg, so I have to end up putting more. (laughs) (laughs) more I'm sure. (laughs) When we first started the the meeting, I think we envisioned it being more for the providers, but at the end of the day, we're all a team. And so... I think more BPA requests come in to hit the providers, so more of our work is around that, but we are doing work on both of them, I would say, right now, both for the nurses and the providers. That allergy BPA example was a good one, only because that actually was hitting nurses more than providers, and so that decrease that we saw was very much so benefited nurses as well. What's
0: your number one alert that's firing in your system that bugs people?
1: I think people would tell you or or me it would be the sepsis alert. It's a very basic SIRS alert and and fires a lot and it, it we're actually looking right now at some of the epic predictive models and I'm hoping to we're hoping to start a project on implementing the cognitive computing sepsis model and potentially the clinical deterioration model as well. When we started looking at I my feeling is this is going to be a massive project in order to do it right just because you have to look at everyone's workflow. We got to look at nurses. You have to look at the bedside nurse, the CRN. You have to look at the provider, the ED doc, the the inpatient doc. And so there's a lot. Lot of pieces to the workflow than just the actual BPA or alert in order to make this successful. So I'm really excited to do this project. I think we'll make a lot of people happy, but this would be the BPA that people would tell you that that drives them nuts just because it doesn't really respect the five rights of clinical des- decision support. Just to go back to that funny story, one, one of the impetuses or imp- impedi, if that's a word, to the CDS group was, and I tell the story a lot when I get requests for BPAs, we had a doc who was one of our ED docs and also was a neurointensivist, And he was telling me about one weekend on service, he kept on getting a BPA for a patient who was intubated with, I think, a subarachnoid hemorrhage that the patient uh, needed to have an echocardiogram because they had heart failure somewhere in their chart, but they couldn't figure it out. And the BP they could not suppress this BPA, so they ended up just ordering an echo so they could suppress the BPA. And and that was the point <laughs> <laughs> where I realized we gotta do something about this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that that is that is a good story. I'd have to say the BPA in our system, that probably drives people nuts the most. I think the sepsis one is up there. Absolutely for our ED docs. Hits them a ton. The, your telemetry order has expired alert is one. We expire our telemetry orders every 24 hours to make the doctor reorder them. But we hit them with an alert to let them know you got to reorder it if you really want it. And so it hits them constantly. And so it's one that I would love to modify and get rid of. So I don't know if you guys have anything like that, but we each have our own pet peeves here when it comes to these things. Well, I want to let you go. I don't want to monopolize more of your time. You've been fantastic. Thank you for coming on the show. I think it's been just really insightful to hear your, Justin, you're young, you're energetic, and you've taken on a ton of responsibility And I think the University of Rochester is lucky to have such a great informatics trio. Of the three I've met, they're all phenomenal rock stars. So uh, you guys are lucky up there. And I hope all is going well and you have been safe and productive in helping your
1: providers do well. Thank you, Mark. Same to you. And once again, thanks again for doing this. This has been a tremendous resource for me. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO
0: Podcast. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn and send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, or just to connect, and I look forward to bringing you our next episode.